So what I like to look uh, tonight as at is in a way looking a little at uh, some of the things we did today in terms of the practice. Also to look at uh, one of the parts of Namarupa, which Stephen will talk more about tomorrow, but I thought I could start a little with that. And so basically I want to read a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya and then talk a little about that. So that's a quote. All things have desire for their roots, attention provide their being, contact their origin, feeling their meeting place, concentration, confrontation with them, mindfulness, control of them, understanding is the highest of them, and deliverance is their core. I'll take them one at a time. So. And I think in this quote, actually, you have a lot which in a way cover a little this topic of the retreat, self, namarupa, and consciousness. So basically what uh, the Buddha is saying, in a very, I mean, this is like a very shortcut version. Also, some of the word could be translated in a different way. However, I uh, did not check with the Pali and Stephen has not checked with the Pali. So maybe in future talk, there will be more precision in terms of the term. So I'm going to weave my understanding of the term themselves. So all things have desire for their roots. So in a way, the idea is that in a way, what moves us is the fact that in a way for anything to happen, there needs to be a movement. And in the same way that in a way to come to this retreat, you need to desire to meditate. So not all desire are bad, because generally desire gets a bad press. But you know, some can have a beneficial result and some maybe not so beneficial result. But what interested me here is the aspect of desire which can be problematic and this is grasping. Because I would say that the practice of meditation is very much a practice of de-grasping. And I feel that in terms of what we are talking in uh, this afternoon in the discussion, I feel there is a focus is in a little go, not the wrong way, but maybe too much one way and not enough the other. Insofar that when we sit in meditation, generally what do we do? We try to meditate a bit, but a lot we wait for something special to happen. <laughs> so like the radar is on for any tingle or any insight or whatever it might be. And of course these things happen and I'll talk more about it another time. But I think more than that, and to me that's what is so essential when we meditate, more than that, by just cultivating concentration and cultivating looking deeply, 
samatha and vipassana, we actually cultivate, develop, de-grasping. And so in a way, personally, I would put more importance on that than on the special meditative state. Because what is interesting is that at the end of a meditation, sitting or walking, even if it's what people call a bad sit, generally meaning you were sleepy or you had thought or things did not go according to what you think they should be going or whatever it is, at the end of it, actually you feel a little different. There is a releasing. There is what I call the effect. <laughs> something happened, but something quite subtle. But that subtle something, that releasing, because you see, we put so much focus on something must happen. We don't consider the fact that you just sit there. You have the patience to sit there. You have the intention to sit there. You have the inspiration to sit there. I mean, Stephen used to say, you know, go in the marketplace and tell somebody, go and sit for 30 minutes and watch your breath. And some people might do it. A lot of people might think, wait a minute, you know, I have better things to do. So I think we should also recognize that just the fact that we sit there, we intend, we have the aspiration, that already has a quite interesting effect. And generally that effect, I would say, accumulates in a way over the retreat to the extent that generally people will say, oh, the effect lasted for a few weeks, months, until it went, because generally other conditions dissipated it or it had less energy. So in a way, grasping, grasping is such an automatic thing, grasping. And I think it's very important to see that grasping is very much connected to this, what I would call solidifying selfing. I think there is a creative selfing, an important selfing, but there is also a selfing which, in a way, solidifies us, sticks us, makes us feel more tense. And so to see that, in a way, the meditation is trying to help us to have less stickiness, so then there can be more creative engagement. And so instead of going for a very solid kind of selfing, then we go for what I would call a more loose, creative selfing. But if we look at the way the selfing work, and not all of you have seen my party trick, so I will uh, show it to the new people. And the other one can. It's always good to see it again. Reminder. So grasping. How it works in a simple way. Let's say that this is, you know, very precious, very important for me. And especially what is important is that it's mine. I cherish it. I want to keep it. I want to hold it. I want to, you know, I might share it a little with people, but I want it. Desire. The root. So I hold on to it in this way. And if I hold on to it in this way for any length of time, two things happen. 
The first one is that I get a cramp in the arm. And that's why, in a way, this is a signal of grasping, is when we feel tension. If we feel some tension, it's kind of like a little signal, ah, there could be some grasping right now. But something much more important also happens when we do this, is that we cannot use our hand for anything else. So in a way, I am stuck to what I am grasping at. And this is what, in a way, is a problem. Then, in a way, you have different solutions to this situation. First one, you can cut the hand, but I would say it's a bit drastic. This is what we could say the ascetic path, which the, the Buddha left behind. Another solution is to get rid of the object. But the object doesn't say, come, come, come. You really want me. No, I am going to save your life. I mean, you have the feeling that the object is glowing and to be the answer to all your problems. But the object just come upon condition. We give the glow to it. Or advertisement give a good glow too. They really know about that. They really, advertisement is a specialist of grasping and magnification. They really know about that. No, I would say that one of the solution is that we open our hand. And I feel the meditation the ethics, the wisdom, the training, the three training helps us to open our hands. So then we can still use a thing, but it can also be moved. There can be movement. We're not stuck anymore. So to see that when we grasp, we have to see the process of grasping, there is identification. I, me, mine. Then there is solidification around it. And then we limit ourselves to what we grasp at, and then we magnify it. And this is what is the most difficult, is the fact that we magnify. So then with the grasping, you have these two things which happen. So we seem to have a little, oh yeah, it's gone red. The green button has gone there. Okay? No, it doesn't work. So I think I'll go with the voice and I'll try to project. Okay? Oh no. Ah, yes, yes. Let's try this one. And so I think what is interesting in terms of the meditation is to notice these two, you could say, outflow of grasping. And one is proliferation which generally leads to abstraction and then is, not, is stopping us from be really being in the moment with the thing as it appears. And the other one is exaggeration, making more than what it is. And so proliferation, we can easily see this when we sit in meditation. For example, with the sun today. You could just sit there and you hear the sounds and just be with the sounds as they rise and pass away. Or there could be a sound that you think, hmm, 
This is such a nice sound, this peep, 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 peep. I really like it. Hmm, I wonder how could I tape it? And then I could play it at home. And then I could meditate better. And off you go. And then you nod with the appreciation of the tweet, tweet, tweet and its changing nature, arising and passing away, but in a way with the abstraction of it, with the proliferation of it, with getting it. Or exaggeration. And then, who knows, there might be this chak, 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 chak. And you think, this chak, it's getting on my nerve. <laughs> I can't stand this chak. And if this chak is like this every day for the whole week, I mean, I can't meditate. I mean, what kind of place which has this kind of chak? I thought this was free of chaking noise. <laughs> so you can see. Exaggeration. And then most of the time the chat goes and something else happens. But to see how with the grasping there is this proliferation and there is this often this exaggeration. And also to see that it can be positive or negative. You can go, this is fantastic, the greatest thing in the universe, or you can go, this is awful, this is terrible. Either way you have the same. And this is why, in a way, what we're trying to do, what I would call de-grasping, what I would call creative engagement, is not repression. Because if you repress, then you actually again magnify negatively. If you proliferate, again you magnify positively or negatively according to the subject. So creative engagement, de-grasping is trying to be with the thing as it arises and trying to creatively engage with it. Then you have attention <coughs> provide their being. And this Stephen will talk more about it because he will talk about Namarupa tomorrow and I can't cover all of them tonight. So Namarupa is Nama contact, feeling, attention, perception, and intention. Rupa is generally considered material form, but Stephen will explain more about that. So attention, I'll leave it for Stephen. But the next one, this is one of my favorite, and this is contact. And I think this is something we can really explore on a retreat to help us also explore in daily life. Does it really make a difference to use it? Okay. So the, the contact, for example, today, we were in contact with sounds. We were also in contact with thoughts. And to me, this is what also is interesting, to see that contact happens with all the senses. The sound, the smell, the taste, the sight, the thought, the sensation in the body. So at any given moment, there are all these contact. 
And so when we are in contact with our senses and with the object of our senses, what do we do? Do we grasp, which then generally will lead to the proliferation and exaggeration? Or do we creatively engage with the contact? And in terms of the listening, that's why I think listening meditation is very important, because it can help us in terms of listening in daily life. How do we deal with sounds in our daily life? I mean, if we live in nature, it's very interesting when you recently we were, uh, we were I was teaching in Sydney, in this beautiful place, a little uh, on the side, very nice garden and tree, even at Bunya tree, with lots of banyan nuts and things, very exciting. And at the same time, it was on the flight path <laughs> of the plane. So we got kind of quite a lot of, you know, plane going overhead. And we also had lots of birds, so lots of bird song. And this is interesting, how we hear one sound, mm, I like it. I could hear it the whole day. Or you hear the plane and mm, I'm not sure about that one. So I mean, it's a contact. We have listening, we contact, and of course, we discriminate. I mean, you know, this is, all of us have to differentiate. It's part of our organism. But when we differentiate, do we do it in a grasping manner, which then again will lead to the proliferation exaggeration, or do we do it in a creatively engaged way? Because to me, this is a thing with the sounds. And even more so, with some of the sounds we hear, are words. And what are words? Talking of self, talking of conditionality. What are words? They're just a little sonorous wave. I mean, I'm not a scientific person, so I can't explain it, but it's just a little wave. It arises and it goes. So I would say at that level, it's really empty. It arises, it passes away, and it's very kind of like, you know, it's not solid, like, you know, somebody bangs you, like that's solid. But a, a word is just gone. But what is interesting is how we grasp at words. Somebody said something to you, I don't know, five years ago. And you sit in meditation and you kind of suddenly think about that, that word. He said this. She said that. How could she? This was so painful. And actually, what is interesting with words, something which is so unsubstantial, we grasp at it and we keep it. And time to time, we take it out. And we kind of, oh, yes, this is painful, isn't it? You know? So in a way, we bring it back now, where it's not existing at all, apart from our grasping at it. Or we can creatively engage with it. What the person says, what it really means. Was it about me or was it about them? Do I need to consider it? Do I need to creatively engage with it? Or do I need to just be creatively equanimous and let it arise and pass away? 
So in a way, this is a thing with words. Because if you stick to it immediately, there is no space. And very quickly, you have this magnifying effect. And you can torture yourself for days. Once I had a friend, and she looked a little troubled. And I said, what's the matter? She said, oh, my husband. Sometimes he says things that are not very nice. You know? I said, oh, really? You know? Then we talk a little more. But then I said, but how often does he say things which are not very nice? Like, you know, every day. I said, no, 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 no. I said, every week? No, 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 time to time. OK. And then she said, you know, he said something about the washing. And it really, really was tough. Really, I was really hurtful. And so now, any time I go into the washing room, I get really upset. And then I asked, but when did he say that? And she said, oh, a year ago. <laughs> so for a year, she'd been so upset about this. Instead of either creative equanimity, he said it because of condition, he's stressed, I'm stressed, and so be it. Or creative engagement. What can we do about this? So in a way to see, what do we do? When we come into contact with what we see, with what we taste, this is something you can really work here with, what you taste. You know, you come to the food, you see the color of the food, and you think, mmm, that looks good. And then generally, you take a little more. And then you taste it, and mm, it's not what you thought it was. This often happens to me. <laughs> and then you think, how can I get rid of it without anybody <laughs> seeing it? Then we're seeing what happens when we see the food, when we taste the food, what happens? Just kind of in a way, seeing that it all starts with contact. As the Buddha says, Contact the origin. And I think this is, to me, that's what the meditation helps us to see. That contact, it starts with contact. So in a way, to become aware of contact. Not in a kind of like frightened way, but what I would call in a more exploratory way, to see what happened. What, what happened that suddenly I get into this strange state? What happened? What was the contact? And it's very interesting to see that. Then you have the next one, feeling their meeting place. And so, again, upon contact, you generally have a feeling, a feeling tone arise. And then according to that, a lot of things are going to happen. And so for this reason, we'll spend a whole day on, in terms of the practice, if you're interested in it, working with Vedana, working with feeling tone, which is, again, one of the nama factor, because I think it's very interesting. And personally, I think it's also very connected to <coughs> ethics. But I'll talk more about it a little later, once we've done kind of being aware, mindful of the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Because this is like immediate. You know, you have a contact. I mean, I had a funny experience recently. I should have brought it. Before I came, I brought a little cardigan, latest fashion in France. And the latest fashion is rabbits. 
So it's full of little rabbits. I'll wear it one day so you can see. Full of <laughs> rabbits, all shape and form. I go to New Zealand, it's a little cold, so I wear my little cardigan with my little rabbits. And one of the participants with a designer lady said, Ooh, I love your cardigan. Very fashionable. Why not? But then I come to Australia. <laughs> and then two people said to me, Rabbits! <laughs> Hundreds of rabbits on your cardigan! <laughs> Like, you know, this is the worst thing I can ever have. <laughs> then I realized Australia, rabbit, maybe that was not such a good idea <laughs> to bring this cardigan to Australia. But you had a contact, you had a visual contact, and you had such a different feeling to it. And it was such a different response to that. So that's what is interesting with contact and the feeling tone that comes, because in a way the feeling tone is really conditioned. And that's what is fascinating to see. The same with the sensation. When you sit in meditation, time to time, especially if you sit on the floor, you have painful sensation. But what is interesting is that it's according to your state of mind. You will have a different feeling tone connected to the sensation. If you're really in deep samadhi, it's fine. Like the Buddha, it's fine. The sensation arise and pass away, no problem. If you are totally, totally daydreaming, you're not here, so it's fine too, you know, just, <laughs> I am not here, who cares? <coughs> but the problem is that we generally half-half, half here and half not here. And then we're really aware of sensation. And then we might grasp and say, if I have this pain in my knee now, I'm going to have it like this every day. By the end of the week, I will not be able to walk. <laughs> if you think like this, use a chair. <laughs> but one thing I can guarantee is that sensation pass. Of course, if the sensation doesn't pass, then you really have to do something about it. You really have to not stay in the same posture, of course. Creative engagement. Then you have concentration, confrontation with them. And we talked about concentration uh, this afternoon. And I think what is important to see is that there is a spectrum in terms of practice. I think we have to see that there is a spectrum in terms of the way we use concentration. You have method which use what I would call a very small focus, very narrow focus. And you have other practices which really have totally wide open focus. So on one side you could have the noting, Burmese noting practice. On the other side, you would have dog chen. And each can be useful for certain people and not so useful for others. Because on this side, often it makes you tense. And on that side, it makes you vague. And that's why, personally, the way I teach, I try to be in the middle. So, and I try to do what I would call inclusive concentration. So that then the concentration, because I feel here it's exclusive concentration, 
over there it's wide open concentration. And it seems to me that we need some anchor. When we sit in meditation, unless we are the type of person who can be in a spacious manner, in a way which is not vague, or some, then I think we need a little anchor. And that's what generally I, su I, I suggest, you know, some anchoring in the breath, in the body, in the sound, in the feeling tone, whatever it is. But the anchoring is not exclusive. It's more a mean to kind of anchor us so that we can come back to the moment. But it's done within a wide open awareness so that then what we can do is explore what is in the foreground, what is in the background. So you can start with the breath, if that's what you're used to. Then you can bring that to the background and bring the listening in the foreground. And it doesn't matter, because what matters is that you have an anchor and that you are aware. So sometimes people worry about the technique. The breath is better than the sound. I think what's be better for you is what works for you at any given time, that you can do relatively easily and that you can relatively anchor with, without making it vague or without making it stressful. So in a way, and I think that this concentration is very useful because in a way, this is one of the key element, effect of the de-grasping, is that each time you come back, so for me, coming back is more important than staying with the breath and worrying about staying with the breath or the sound or whatever. But each time you come back, you're actually doing two things. One is that you're not feeding the habits, mental, emotional, or physical habits, and you're dissolving their power so that you can bring them back to their creative functioning. So when we meditate, we're not trying to stop thinking, feeling, sensing, listening, or whatever. We're trying to bring it back to its creative functioning. And at the same time to see that when we notice that we are gone, then we have information. I think thought, for me, I no problem. You can have lots of thought. And I think that's fine. As long as you're aware, what is it <coughs> I'm thinking? Because there is a difference between being totally caught in the thought and then suddenly see, ah, I was thinking this. And then you can explore, how was I thinking it? And then you can start to explore, actually, what I call the taste of the thought. That actually, <coughs> thoughts have different feel <coughs> to them. And so instead of trying to push the thought away, try actually to see, how does it feel when it starts? Of course, at the beginning, we'll find ourselves at the end of it, or in the middle of it. But over time, we start to feel the beginning of it. And then you can start to see that different thoughts, in a way, have different, what I call, trigger feeling tone. That they, kind of, they have a different thing. And it becomes really interesting to be aware of that. So to see that when we concentrate, we're actually trying to dissolve the power of the mental habit, for example. But at the same time, it gives us an opportunity to see what am I thinking? And how does it feel, this thinking? Because again, that generally will lead to the, our response. 
or our reaction. Then the next one, mindfulness, control of them. And so in a way, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to cultivate mindfulness, awareness. But you see that one of the first things about mindfulness is actually it makes us conscious. But it makes us conscious in a specific way. Because often I think we have to be careful that the mindfulness we develop in meditation does not make us become self-conscious. Because then if we become self-conscious, we become like, <gasps> again, there is this grasping, there is this tensing, there is this me when we're self-conscious. And often we have to be careful there that we not become like this policewoman or policeman on our shoulder, kind of looking for everything. We think, we feel, we sense, and going into the checking mode. And that, I would say, is not cultivation. But conscious is to be conscious, oh, that is what's going on. And this is one interesting thing you can do in daily life when you're talking with somebody, or when we're talking to you, because it's hard to sustain attention. And so you might be looking in the right direction, and then you might go off for three minutes. And then you have no idea what Stephen said or what I said. Hmm? <laughs> and he seems to have moved on. I seem to have moved on. And what happened is that we were not conscious. It doesn't mean the consciousness was not there. We, I mean, we, we, we are conscious, we are alive. But this kind of like what I call mindful consciousness, being aware of what's going on, was not there. So this is what we're trying to develop in a way, this consciousness of which is conscious but without being tense about it, without going into this self-consciousness or this self-checking. So in a way, they often call it presence of mind. So in a way, it's becoming present to what is happening inside and outside. I think it's very important to see it's not just about becoming present to inside. Because in a way, we are not just inside. We are inside meeting outside. We are in the world. So I think we have to be careful of not just seeing the meditation as it's just self-exploration. But I think meditation as just becoming more aware of the inner condition meeting the outer condition. And then if we do this, we have to be careful that we cannot be conscious of everything to the same degree. Because there is too much contact, too many feeling tones, too many things in any given moment. And that's why I think it's kind of useful to see foreground and background. We can be aware of something in the foreground and try to be a bit aware of the rest in the background. And in a way, the mindfulness becomes being more present to things, but in that wide open way. Also, sometimes it's called also protective awareness. In terms of we become conscious what's going on, 
and then what to do. So to see that the mindfulness is not just this kind of bare staring at reality, but is actually back to this creative engagement with what is going on. So there is this active quality to do something about it. And the Buddha talks quite a bit about that, and I'll bring that later on. About There is some very interesting sutta about that, about the active quality of getting engaged, like in the four great efforts or things of that nature. Because in a way, as I said before, there is an impact. We're in contact with things. We are impacted by things. And then what do we do? Do we creatively engage or do we grasp? One good example is waiting. You are waiting for somebody. Six o'clock, they're not here. Ten past six, he or she does not love me. Six twenty, nobody loves me. <laughs> six thirty, I hate the world. <laughs> and we can get in very bad space. Instead of six o'clock, they're not here. What happened? What can I do? Once a per I mean, generally on a retreat, I do interview, private interview. And generally, once or twice, somebody will not show up. So instead of thinking, who do they think they are or whatever, I think, what happened? Either they deep in meditation, either they mi mixed up the time, or mixed up the day, or thing of that nature. And I don't, I mean, I check if I see the person to see that they're okay, but I generally don't worry about it. I kind of expect it, you know, that this will happen. And so in a way, it's to see, you have this waiting, what do I do with it? And so in a way, the mindfulness helps us to have more of this creative engagement. Then there is various um, adjectives about this mindfulness. One is not wobbling, not floating. So in a way that the, the mindfulness you're trying to develop is stable. And to me, one thing about the meditation, that it be sitting or walking, is on a retreat like this, what we're trying to develop is a stability. A stability within our being that becomes a refuge, that becomes a, a riches. For me, it's actually more important than any fantastic meditative state. Meditative state, they come and they go. But the stability we built on a retreat, this can stay with us. Because it's something which is actually not just in the mind. It's in the whole body and mind. And that kind of seat. That's why I think it's so important, having that posture, that stability. So when something difficult happens, we can actually take refuge in that stability inside our body, inside our being. And from that place, have that creative engagement. The next one is absence of confusion, that actually the mindfulness orients us. It's kind of like helps us to orient, helps us to kind of see 
again more clearly. Also engaging the object in experience, but we talked about this already, the fact that it helps us to be here. Often we think of spirituality as transcending condition, as trying to be above it all. But I would say the mindfulness is really to make us more in the experience. And that's what is interesting with the concentration. Notice, when you come back to the anchor, when you come back to the object, you don't just come back to the breath, the listening or whatever. You come back to the whole thing. This is what is interesting. That actually just coming back to the anchor helps us to come back to this wide open awareness where we're not just aware of the object, but also the other things in the experience around the object. Another thing is ethical discernment. And we mentioned that briefly, so that in with the mindfulness, I think we have to be very careful here, that in a way you could be very mindful killing somebody. I mean, I had a friend, he uh, was in Australia, English friend, and the only job he found was to kill chicken on an assembly line. Chuk, 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 poor chuki. Chuk, chuk. But I mean, he was very mindful doing it, but he could not do it because it was, if he could not do it, because it was unethical. He, it, he really, uh, so he lasted about a few days and then he kind of, he could not do it. So the mindfulness is not just being aware, but being aware in an ethical way. So again, it's a very specific type of mindfulness. And also it has an exploratory, probing quality. And that is interesting. Again, it's not, we're not trying to stare at reality. But in a way, we're trying to penetrate what is going on. What is this experience? But not so much in an abstract manner of definition, of commentary, but trying to be in it. How does it feel myself in the world, with the world? And more than that, how do other fields? To me, that was one of the things I really appreciate with the mindfulness, with the meditation, is that it kind of, I'll talk more about this another time too, but it dissolves the self. What I would call the fixing, solidifying self, the separating self. And then because that goes, then it opens you to the other. And then you can see the other where they are at and not where you think they might be. So in a way, it helps you to discover the other, the world, not from your own point of view, how it should be, how I want it to be, but how it happens, how it occurs, how are people in this moment, how is the world in this moment, and how can I engage with that. And then I leave you with a last image then. And this is, in a way, the image of the plowman. And this is in one of the sutta. The mindfulness is compared to a plowman. And for two reasons. That first, the plowman 
must apply the plow in a balanced way. Like if he pushes too much, he digs too deep and he doesn't advance. If it's too light, then he doesn't get his furrow going. So that, in a way, in the mindfulness we're trying to develop, there is this balance quality. There is this equilibrium of the kind of, in a way, like a right pitch in music. And the other quality is that as a plowman dig, actually something is uncovered. So that as we practice, it allows us to see things we have not seen before, even when they were in front of us. And to me, this was in a way the first time, even though I was in Korea and I was doing questioning meditation, which I will introduce later on, and there was no talks whatsoever of mindfulness and awareness, none whatsoever, in some way. But after just two retreats, I was sitting in meditation, and suddenly I became so aware that all my thoughts were about me. Basically, I became aware of selfing. And I could see, I could see my thoughts so clearly. And it was all about I, me, mine, for me, whatever. And for me, it was a revelation. And I realized, hey, that's a problem. But it did not make me feel bad. I just thought it was very funny. <laughs> Up to that moment, I thought I was one of the most compassionate person in the world. Now I realize, ooh, I am also ego-centered. And then I realized everybody was the same. I was sharing the room with four other ladies, and it was the same. And then I thought it was even more funny. <laughs> All of us trying, you know, just thinking about ourselves. Very interesting. And so that's what the, the mindfulness does. It makes us see things, but in a light way. And then we can creatively engage with what is going on. How can I reduce that ego-centeredness to have a more equality, what I would call 50-50, self-centered and 50 other-centered. So that's what I wanted to say today. So we have a little time, about 10 minutes for questions or comments, if there are any. bag that got lost on tr in transit, did you get it back? Ah, <laughs> the famous one. This is a good story. <laughs> this is contact. This is contact. So what happened is that we arrived from Wellington to Sydney. Conditionality in action. And one of the suitcases, we have two suitcases, was not there. Was not, was not there. So we kind of, you know, got a little number and they would look at it. We <coughs> phoned the next day, don't know. We phoned the second day and then the guy goes into condition, you know, in Wellington, they're really not up to it. You know, the, <laughs> the computer sometimes can go funny, you know, you know, things happen. You know, sometimes the thing can, you know, fly off from the conveyor belt, you know, conditionality, full-fledged. He was really aware of conditionality, the guy. 
And then, two days later, we get the explanation. They found our suitcase in Melbourne. <laughs> and Mr. Karnaka, or Mrs. Karnaka, arrived in Sydney, sought contact with our suitcase, very good feeling tone, <laughs> and he took it, or she took it, took off the little pillar, our thing on it, had to go to Melbourne possibly the next day, did not open the suitcase, got to Melbourne and poor things. <laughs> Opened and found it was not his or hers. So we have it back now. And she or he did not take anything. Because it was full of dirty clothes. <laughs> <coughs> and Stephen was wonderful on the, on the phone. He said, oh, it's mildly inconvenient. <laughs> Equanimity in action. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.